watchers in the fourth dimension. The sleeper must relax and believe. You must obey. I've never seen you go for food like this before. It usually has. It usually has. Hello and welcome to the Brit Track Presents Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. I'm Anthony. I'm Don. I'm Julie. And I'm Riley. This panel is Doctor Who The Early Years, a beginner's guide to the first and second Doctor eras of Doctor Who. For those of you who don't know us, we are a Doctor Who podcast watching our way through the entire show and podcasting about it as we go. We recently reached the end of these two Doctors, so we are fully ramped up and ready to go with this podcast with these various episodes fresh in our minds. We'll be tackling this panel divided up into six episodes in the style of those early Doctor Who serials. So we're going to go ahead and jump straight in with episode one, The Quest for Time. If you are a new series fan of Doctor Who and you have some interest in tackling the classic series and maybe starting with the original two Doctors, there are a number of challenges that new viewers face, such as slower pacing, longer story arcs and missing episodes. Let's talk about that. If you, again, if you're used to the faster pace of the new series, how can you perhaps handle the the slower pace and Julie I know that you hadn't seen any classic Doctor Who before we started so I think it makes sense to start with you on that there's some good and bad with the slower pacing and the longer story arc because if the writing is good and that's the key there having those longer serials are actually a really good thing because you actually get to know the characters you see how they interact with each other and usually some of the episodes focus on some of the different characters as opposed to just being you know trying to cram everyone all into every episode but if the writing is bad it drags on and on and on um so that's really the key to it is that kind of thing so that's kind of my view on that when it comes to missing episodes it kind of fits in the same way if the writing is good you can get through some of those missing episodes by you know watching either reconstructions animations things of that nature some of them just skip them (laughs) skip the space pirates skip the smugglers i promise you don't need to watch those the two episodes that have pirates are the worst but some of them can be really good marco polo underwater menace some of those even though they're missing are still really enjoyable so that's kind of where i'm at so to sum up our advice is don't all right good panel guys (laughs) (laughs) anthony you brought up like where you can find the original series well if you really want to take a wild dive into it for missing episodes, I suggest you go onto YouTube. You can find a lot of good amateur animation that does these missing serials. And I, in all honesty, I'm, I'm joking, but uh, I do respect the effort that people make into it. And it's really good. And actually, one of the things that makes it so nice about missing episodes is that it provides an opportunity for creativity from the fandom to create something. And, and that's really nice. But I do recommend just dipping your toe into that. And we did a whole panel on missing episodes for the Brit Track in 2020. So if you do want to find out more about those, you can go onto the Brit Track's YouTube channel and find that panel there, or it's available on our podcast as well. But we obviously mentioned there are a few ways of watching it. Riley, you, you talked about the fan efforts. I think we should probably also draw some attention to the remount of Mission to the Unknown that some fans did a couple of years ago. Highly recommended. And I think. I speak for all of us when I say our our preferred way of watching those missing episodes is using the official animations. That seems to be the most accessible, but there are things like telesnap reconstructions that are out there if you know where to look on the internet. 
I guess the, the other question before we move on to actually talking about the Doctors themselves is what are those elements that you kind of see in the new series that link it back to the classic series? Things like the obvious one would be the sonic screwdriver, but what else might look familiar to someone watching these early serials? The alias of John Smith. So that one's brought in. He uses it, I think, one or two times. And then the third doctor has used it a few times, I think. We're not quite going there. I was going to say right off the bat, Unearthly Child, Cole Hill School. Claire Oswald teaches there. Not just that, but you have the great intelligence shows up in the 12th Doctor's run a couple times. And also, you can actually have callbacks to certain shots. One thing that we just covered the invasion a while back in, that shot of the Cybermen marching down the steps from St. Paul's Cathedral was used in Dark Water for the 12th Doctor. You do see a lot of instances like that where the modern directors are cribbing elements from those older stories. But frankly, until they bring back the fault locator, I don't care. Spring back the astral map. Yes. The web planets. I mean, yeah, there are some slightly more obscure things that's really nice little Easter eggs. Things like the hypercube, the Time Lord communication device that's originally from the war games. You see it again in The Doctor's Wife. Or the hostile action displacement system <laughs> from the second Doctor's era, which comes back in, in the 11th Doctor story, Cold War. So that there are lots of nice little things that tie it all together um, and make it quite enjoyable if you're a new series fan watching the classic or if you're a diehard old classic series fan and watching the new series. And you're like, oh, yeah, that obscure thing. Okay, that takes us into our second part, episode two, The Changing Face of blank. So if you were going to sum up the first and second Doctors for new viewers, how would you do that? Let's go with Riley on this one. I don't think I've directed something at you yet. I would say for the first Doctor, prone to crankiness, but it can be filled with enthusiasm when he finds things of interest. He's reserved, but sometimes he shows a very playful trickster kind of side. And then with the second Doctor, he's a lot more open, a lot more uh, warm than the first Doctor, and a lot more casual. That would be my my take on it. It's The second Doctor is closer to new Who Doctors than the first Doctor is. Julie, do you have anything to add to that? I mean, I could sum it up a little bit more succinctly. The first Doctor is a crotchety old man, and the second <laughs> Doctor is a manic madman. That's true. <laughs> the original madman with a box. Yes. Don, how about you? I think I've summed this up before in the context of our podcast, but the first Doctor is kind of like your grandpa. He's kind of bitter and cranky, but he'll take care of you. The second Doctor is like your cool uncle that comes to visit and will let you do the stuff that you want, but you're probably going to get hurt and kind of regret it later. He's also just a lot more fun. I think with these two particular Doctors, they really become the archetypes that influence all Doctors beyond. How would you say that characterization has changed over time? Particularly if you look at the crotchety old grandpa and on, for example, Peter Capaldi, like how different is that from Hartnell's portrayal? Or if you look at the madman with a box, how how's that different from Matt Smith's portrayal? You know, they're, they're clearly leveraging those archetypes but how different are they when represented in the modern era the new doctors monologue a lot more (laughs) (laughs) the first doctor has maybe one or two of those and that's about it but it's kind of a recurring staple of the modern series what i like with some of the early doctor stuff is those little moments that he would have with the companion where it's just a one-on-one conversation you know again that leads to the not as much monologuing but having actual character moments as i like to call them 
So there's there's a lot of lot more of that. And then kind of like with Matt Smith, he's manic in a way that like seems like childlike a little bit more than just just having fun or or something along those lines. So it's always interesting because he's supposed to be playing some someone older. But oftentimes I sit there, I'm like, grow up a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Riley, anything to add? Well, you know, I was thinking about this and I was thinking about how they change over their time. I was thinking about how the first doctor changes to the second doctor. And I'm thinking about in that era. And also I was thinking that, you know, when you think of the first doctor, it's, I was thinking of him as a mysterious force of nature because we don't really know what he's all about at the beginning, do we? It's very clear at the end of the second doctor, we finally get a clear mission statement from the doctor in his quote, when he says, well, you've been content merely to observe the evil in the galaxy. I have been fighting against it. That is like, the definitive mission statement for the doctor going forward. It wasn't there before. It's like it cleared it all up. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely a huge change to the show that then takes it into the seventies and beyond highly, highly influential. One of the interesting things too, and I think I mentioned it on one of our other episodes, we look a lot of, you know, Eccleston's Tennant Smith, all of them in the more direct influences, but Whitaker is an interesting one because I think that she doesn't quite fit within that parallel, but it's not just because she's a woman, but it's just, she doesn't really fit the crotchety old archetype, but she's not quite manic. So it's a very interesting where she doesn't seem to fall very easily on that plane. That's an interesting comment, Julie. Yeah, I think her doctor in general is a lot more childlike than previous doctors at times. There's an innocence there that you don't really Mm -hmm. see in other doctors. And that's very, very interesting. You can see the Troughton in there, but then there's something else that's new. And it'll be interesting to see if that becomes something that comes back time and time again in future doctors or whether it's just a a one-off for the 13th doctor. All right, so let's do a kind of quick fire on each of the modern doctors and which of the first two they are most like. So do you think Eccleston is closer to Hartnell, Tennant to Troughton? We'll do this quick fire. I'll say the Doctor, and then you can each kind of take a turn on which of the two you think it's most like. So let's start with Eccleston. Don. Hartnell. Riley? Mostly Hartnell, yes. And Julie? Hartnell. I agree. Tennant. Riley, go. I'm going to cheat. 65-35 Troughton. Ooh. (laughs) Julie? Troughton. And Don? Troughton. Okay. Matt Smith. Julie? Uh, Troughton. (laughs) Riley? Absolutely Troughton. (laughs) Done. Totally Trouton. One hundred percent agreed. Totally Trouton. Now that's totally a good television show. <laughs> totally Trouton. All right, Capaldi, Riley, Hartnell, Julie, Hartnell, Don, Hartnell. No doubt about it. He's got that crotchety old man that no one else has. And then finally, Jody, and this is cheating a little since we've already talked about it. But of the two, which would you say, Don? We'll start with you. Colin Baker. <laughs> She certainly has his fashion sense. It's going to take another set of writers to really get a good grasp on her doctor and personality. That is my controversial opinion. I don't think it's that controversial. I think it's quite well held. Riley. Uh, Is Chibnall still running the show? (laughs) He is. I'll get back to you on that then. (laughs) (laughs) And then finally, Julie. If you're making me choose, I will choose Troughton, but it's not as much as the others. Yeah, she's definitely not the kind of crotchety old space wizard that Hartnell is, but she's not quite the cosmic hobo either. She, As I said, she's something else. We will now think about when the first Doctor came back. The first Doctor came back in Twice Upon a Time, played by David Bradley. How accurate do you all think that that portrayal was? And how does it differ from the original, you might say? 
I have two major opinions. From an attitude and acting perspective, I think David Bradley does a fantastic job. If you're going to have someone do it, he's the person that you're going to need to be playing him. However, the writing of the doctor is what's poor. They make him seem really sexist and is frankly off-putting. But that's not of the fault of David Bradley. That's on the fault of the writers. And I don't think the writers really truly understood Hartnell. I think it's because the story was more about how the 12th Doctor has progressed over time. So they're using what people think about the first Doctor rather than the actual first Doctor himself in that. And yeah, it makes him come off as really a lot more sexist, almost a little bit racist at times. And it's just, it's not the first Doctor. I'm in complete agreement. I would also like to say that I think they, I mean, I know the first Doctor can be crabby, but I think they ramped that up a little too much as well. You know, there are other sides to him other than just, you know, cranky grandpa. I think what Stephen Moffat did there was he really emphasized those slightly more negative qualities of the first Doctor that are there, but they're not the overriding part of his character. And he did that entirely for laughs. And it kind of leaves a little bit of a sour taste in the mouths of those of us who are first Doctor fans, because it's it's not quite true to his character. Now, there is one other Doctor from the 60s that I want to touch on here, and that is, of course, Peter Cushing in the two <laughs> movies. And I realise this is a curveball for you all, because I don't think any of you were expecting this, but how would you describe his Doctor, particularly in contrast to the two TV Doctors? A little bit dottier. He didn't have a whole lot of character. Despite having two movies, they didn't spend a lot of time exploring really who this guy was. But at the same time, I think if given the right script, I think he could have been an amazing Doctor. I absolutely love him because I love Hammer Horror. I think he did a good job of what was provided him. Don's right. He does have this kind of um, absent-minded professor kind of quality, you know, like, you know, slipping on a book or something or something like that and i can't help but think of like was he trying to like play into some sort of concept of like a clumsy professor character that he may have played before i guess but don's right he could have he could have nailed it just you know needed an actual developed character a fully developed character it was very jerry lewis-esque and that has its laughs but from a doctor perspective yeah you guys are absolutely right those were very much an Ian story or whoever the companion was story. Those definitely, yeah. he was just there as a, this is the stepping stone uh, into what this world is, but he was just the person who got them there. He was not the main character of those stories. I mean, I think those movies were really designed to be about Daleks in color on the big <laughs> screen more than anything and capitalizing on Dalek mania. But I think we see a doctor in Peter Cushing's Doctor Who, as he's called on screen, that's a lot more grandfatherly because he has a young grandchild in the movies. And it's a very different take, but I agree. It, it would be nice to see him do more with the role. All right, that takes us into episode three, The Children of Time. So this is our segment about the companions. Obviously, over the course of the black and white era, we have a plethora of companions from different backgrounds. And we start off, of course, with Ian, Barbara and the Doctor's own grandchild, Susan. What was the role of the companion in those very early episodes and really in the first season? Let's start with, I think, Riley this time. You know, it's, it's interesting because Susan really is the mystery that sets off the whole adventure in the very first episode. So she's 
kind of not a companion until a little bit later. She's kind of more of the device that gets Barbara and Ian onto the TARDIS. And then Barbara and Ian are really considering the time and the, the time and location where they're from, which is the same as the time and location which the episodes were aired. They are audience surrogates. And only until later on to the show do we get companions from much different times and different places that it expands on that. So I would say when the show first began, they are purely just audience surrogates. Do you think they're effective in that role? Absolutely. I think so. They're amazing. How dare you indicate that <laughs> there could be something that's wrong with Barbara? As a school teacher from the <laughs> 1960s myself, yes, I think they are quite effective. I think we all know that Ian and Barbara are probably some of the best companions the show has ever had. And I'm certainly not disputing that. <laughs> certainly not to, you know, get more views on the internet. But <laughs> no, I, I, I agree. I think they're the window into the show and they had to be and they had to be perfect and effective. Otherwise, the show would have died at the very beginning. Mm -hmm. We have Ian and Barbara in that surrogate role. How does the role of the companion change over the course of the first six years? As Susan leaves, we get Vicky. Ian and Barbara leave, we get Stephen. And we have this churn of companions, roughly one or two leave a season and we always get a new one. How does the role change as we see the companions change? I think a lot of that depends on who's doing the writing. I mean, so many times you have a female companion role and a male companion role. If they're the female, their job is to wander off, get captured, scream a lot, get rescued, get captured. That's if they're being written poorly. In especially the Hartnell era, the role of the male companion was to do the physical stuff that Hartnell couldn't do. And oftentimes they would even hand over some of the doctor's lines to him if he was out sick. As things move further on, especially into the Troughton era, they're really more like the doctor's friends which is actually nice. You get more characterizations. You get a little TARDIS family, which you do have a little bit with Barbara, Ian, and eventually Vicky. And it's, uh, you know, it, it eventually gets better and sometimes gets, gets worse. <laughs> it definitely goes from that outside view looking in to friendship and, and things of that nature. One of the things I, I note a lot is that Hartnell, you know, half the time he was trying to get rid of Barbara. He's like, I'm going to leave you here and you're just going to have to deal with it and, you know, figure out how to live in this time. And then when you get to uh, Troughton and, you know, it comes time with what happens with Zoe and Jamie and it's it's devastating to him when he's forced to be parted from them. So it's, it's a very big change. Well, I think even with the first Doctor, you see a pretty mm -hmm. radical change in his attitude towards his companions. By the time Ian and Barbara do actually leave, he's quite upset about it. There's that wonderful scene at the end of the massacre, which is bluntly probably the best thing about the massacre, <laughs> after Stephen leaves, where the Doctor has that wonderful little monologue about how everyone's left him and maybe he'll go home, but oh wait, no, I can't. And he starts becoming a lot more paternal or grandfatherly to his companions by the end. Another thing that's changed with the companions is that their motivations change. I mean, Barbara and Ian, from the very beginning, their motivation is to get back home. Yeah. While mm -hmm. later on, everyone else seems to, either by choice or by happenstance, be happy to go along with the adventure. You know, I mean, that's their motivation. And in, mm -hmm. to steal a joke here with Katarina, her motivation was to be the first woman in space. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, I know we've gone there before, but that's still dark. Another thing with that is, to be perfectly frank, when you, especially Zoe and Jamie, 
got Zoe, who's been brainwashed for most of her life, and she's trying to escape that. And then you have Jamie, who just got out of Culloden, and so the entire Highland or way of life is going to be taken away. They come from very traumatic backgrounds, and so their ability to travel on the TARDIS, like, there's no reason for them to want to leave. And yeah, that's significantly different than what we had with Ian and Barbara. Yeah, and, and with Vicky, I mean, she we find her, she's being gaslighted by who wants to be a coquillionaire. <laughs> <laughs> very, yes. very true. Yes. What do you think makes the companions from the black and white era unique in comparison to their modern counterparts? Not a single one of them falls in love with the Doctor, and Kamika from the Aztecs does not count. <laughs> also, most importantly, they're truly regular people. Mm-hmm. And the New Who has a problem in which, and don't get me wrong, I love New Who, but there's a problem. Every companion has some sort of amazing universe bending thing about them. While, you know, Barbara Dean, literally just school teachers. And that's nothing mm-hmm. against school teachers, but they're just school <laughs> teachers. They're not, they're not the key to some grand universal mystery. Yeah, I think that's a really good point though, Riley. You know, you've got the bad wolf with Rose, then you've got Martha who traveled the earth to save mankind. You've got whatever was going on with Donna. You've got Amy, the girl who waited, Clara, the impossible girl. And it just goes on and on and on and on until you get to Bill and then Jodie's companions who actually start fitting back more into the mold of the classic companions. But yeah, it definitely was an issue where every companion in modern Who is like super special and super important. And yeah, here they're ordinary people. With that, who do you think are the most important companions or perhaps your personal favorite companions of the first two Doctors? And we know exactly where you're going to go, Julie. So we may as well start with you. You don't, because my most important companion is Vicky, because Vicky is the template for future companions. She's smart. She's willing to just do whatever she wants to start a whole bunch of rebellions. (laughs) Everyone is based off of her for the most part. There's some element of them. And so I think she's really the most important because as much as I love Barbara and Ian, which they're important because they're the first ones and they're good. And, you know, everyone knows my love of Jamie, but she's really, truly the most important of all of the companions up to this point. And your favorite? Oh, Jamie's my favorite. (laughs) Because, and the reason why is that the chemistry that he has with the Doctor is the best chemistry between a companion and a Doctor that I've seen so far. Yeah. Don, let's go to you next. We did say some, so I don't have to pick just one, which is good. No. Obviously, Barbara and Ian are there because they were there from the very beginning and they really set that template. Um, Julie effectively took my answer for, for Vicky because she's right about that. I'm I'm a big fan of Zoe because she gets to be smart and doesn't become the peril monkey that Susan became. And um, wasn't there some guy in a skirt, Hamish or something? <laughs> I, I, he set the standard of the Doctor having a friend which I think came along later as to tie in with, say, Donna, um, Bill, the 12th later on, where they could they could be friends and they weren't just someone that had to rescue. And then last but not least, Riley. Everyone's kind of stole my thunder there. Vicky is very, very important. And that's not just because of the template. She's the first changeover. Mm-hmm. That's important. And I, we, of course, Barbara and Ian, we give them all the credit they deserve. Also, personally, I, I just love Zoe. I said I, I, I love her. I realized it when we were on our doing our show, and I just kept bringing her up over and over again. I've never – she's just constantly just in my thoughts. I love Zoe. That's it. 
what I'm gathering from everyone, and I'm in agreement with, season six had the best companions with Jamie and Zoe. Yes, hands down. I completely agree with Don. Ian and Barbara are so important because if they'd got them wrong, the show would never have lasted beyond its original 13 episode order. And then Vicky, for for the reasons mentioned, she's the first changeover and then they use her as a template. So I, I think everyone is absolutely spot on here. Next up, episode four, Evolution of the Daleks. Now, obviously, from Modern Who, the Daleks are the Doctor's iconic villain. They start a time war against the Doctor's own people that escalates pretty severely. But they have a very different first appearance, one that's almost a lot more kind of humble. Let's discuss and describe the first outing on the show of the Daleks and how that differs from their new series portrayal. Riley, let's start with you this time. The first introduction of the Daleks is absolutely brilliant. It's done with suspense. It's brought up and it has a great background story. And when you think about it, because there's the Daleks are, even if you don't follow the show, if you are a science fiction fan in general, if you don't really follow Doctor Who, you know who they are. They are in the collective consciousness. That's good and bad. The bad side of that is that we have, because of... We have so much jokes and memes. It's undercut the terrifying nature of the Daleks. And you have to, when you watch the very first serial with them, you need to put yourself in the perspective of the people that are watching at the time in 1963. The Daleks are radiated mutants that are driving around in looks like little panzer tanks. So basically, they're hitting on all these World War II fears that are just there amongst people. If you put yourself in the perspective of what they were looking at then when they first saw it, it had to have been absolutely terrifying. And they are very terrifying if you look at it that way. But then as the show goes on, it changes. And we'll, we'll probably get to that a little bit later. But initially, perfect and really, really good. Riley, you kind of hit on it. But what do you think really made... Dalek mania catch on with the British public. I mean, after the first serial went out and for the next three years of the show, there was this huge love of the Daleks that resulted in them coming back and it resulted into spin-off films. What do you think really drove that? As ridiculous as they look, that iconic look helped, especially in that like what first or second episode when you have that shot where you just see the the plunger and you see it from that angle, it's so good. And it's a very basic design, but they are frightening. I think it's really the look of them really helped with that. I also think if you could provide an easy answer to that question, you would have given the BBC an idea of how to replicate it again, which they tried many, many times to have that, mm -hmm. that same impact, and they just never did. Chumbly's quartz. <laughs> Yeah. Also, you know, I would have to say the voice is very distinctive. Mm -hmm. Everyone loves mm -hmm. to do the voice. Also, there is a strange cuteness in the design. I don't know what. There's something cute about it because they're maybe because they're kind of short and squat. Do you think there's an element of for a child, it's relatively easy to kind of mimic them because you can go to to the restroom and grab the plunger. You can go to the kitchen yeah. and grab yeah. the egg whisk and mm -hmm. walk around talking like this. <laughs> I am a Dalek. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. One thing that we didn't really touch on about the first outing and because I am familiar with the Daleks from New Who, they were much more talkative than I expected. In New Who, they're very much exterminate and that's about all they say half the time until they have their sass off with the cybermen but we won't go there 
But they were much more talkative than I expected. And there were often times when I had to go look up what they were saying because I was just like, oh my gosh, they're speaking for about five minutes. I don't know what they said. So that was very unexpected for me. And just something that I found interesting that over time they decided, you know what? They don't need to speak anymore. They're the Daleks. We're just going to have them do what they do. They were also so much less powerful. During that initial serial, yeah. they're trapped in this city that they've made. They need static electricity to move around, and they're still in these little tank things. And they can't but, go upstairs. But they can't. And they can't go upstairs. <laughs> and to me, that's part of the interesting thing, because they're one of these two surviving tribes from this nuclear war. But they're not the super all-powerful Daleks. They're these messed up creatures in these little boxes just hanging on to survival. It's It's kind of frightening, really. And I think you kind of see that difference in that Susan just escapes from them by using mud from her shoe and putting it yes. on their eye. They almost send that up in New Who in Journey's End, where Wilfred mm -hmm. gets one with a paintball gun and it mm -hmm. just evaporates the paint off of the lens. And it's like, yeah, you're not going to get them that way anymore. <laughs> I think, Julie, you kind of hit on it a little bit. How do the Daleks change over those first four years of the show? I think that's kind of pretty key. Not only about how they talk and things like that, but they become more power hungry. You got your first story where they're really just trying to survive on that planet. Maybe they're going to wipe out that other race because of the radiation. You know, it happens. But then they're trying to take over at a galaxy, you know, so it every single time they seem to be wanting to do more and more. So that's very interesting. And they get time travel, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In the chase. So, yeah. And see, that's part of the thing is like in the chase, that's like the beginning of where we start to see a bit of a comedic kind of feel. They get a little silly because there's some very mm -hmm. humorous scenes in the chase and it really does undercut their terror. And and like you said, they, they do follow that well-worn path of antagonists of what are we going to do today? Try to take over the universe. There is my favorite Dalek in the chase. And that's the stupid one when asked the question <laughs> and he goes, ah, um, ah. 37? <laughs> you know, I, I'm with you. You know, interestingly, it massively ramps up the stakes with the Daleks through Dalek's master plan. And then the next time we see them again in The Power of the Dalek, they're a lot lower key. They're not trying to take over the universe again. They're back to kind of a much smaller scale story. Do you think that works better than something like Dalek's master plan? Or do you prefer the grand scale kind of space opera the problem is is they're using that as the example when that was a huge undertaking that they did and i thought that worked very well i liken it to a lot of like new who where like every single time they're doing something ridiculous like moving planets around and it's just it's not effective at that point it's just like they're your op you know it's like they can do whatever they want. I do like, in general, like the smaller scale stories because I just, we don't need that huge scale every single time. It gets really ridiculous when every, the fate of the universe is at stake every single time. I, to me, a story about a single family that's in danger from the Daleks is much more interesting than an entire yeah. planet. Oh, I, I agree completely. It provides, it's just, obviously it's a harder thing to write. But that's because it will provide so much. It provides so much more depth, and that would be a lot more interesting than just write it off as let's take over the universe. I think there's room for both types of story. You know, I really enjoyed the grand space opera, but if you're doing a smaller scale story like Power of the Daleks or like Dalek in Modern Who, 
there's a lot more space for character development with the non-Dalek characters. And that, I think, is a lot more kind of effective. After season four, obviously, Terry Nation decided to try and spin off the Daleks into their own show, which was unsuccessful. So we don't see them again. So while they do get two appearances with the second Doctor, they're more the first Doctor's main enemy in terms of recurring. But what we do get, and this leads us into our next segment, episode five, is the emergence of the Cybermen. They show up in the first Doctor's last story. So let's talk about the introduction of the Cybermen. Thoughts, feelings, opinions. Let's start with Don this time. I like the first couple of appearances of the Cybermen because they're a unique example of body horror within the Doctor Who canon. And what I find frightening about them when they're done well is they think they're trying to help you because they're making you like them and what they do is survive. And to me, that's terrifying. They don't think they're the bad guys, which makes them much more interesting. I also like the really early designs where it's like hospital gauze and just bits of metal and what appear to be air conditioners sticking out of their chest. It's <laughs> it's really unusual. And I think later on, a lot of that gets lost as they streamline it and they just kind of turn them into robots. I want to jump in on that. Don's absolutely right. It is a body horror element because with the body horror, they are the corruption of the human form, just like zombies. Instead of decay, it's technology. And what makes the earlier design work, being all clunky, is that you can read off and see like, no, this isn't a good use of technology. This is haphazard and it looks like a mess of cables and it's clunky. It's not like how the new Cybermen look like a brand new BMW. It's not as terrifying because it doesn't look just as grimy and yeah, medical procedure-y. I think that's an interesting point, Riley, because if you look at what was going on at the time, you had a lot more transplants and so on happening. You know, the first heart transplants happened in the 60s. There's this fear of replacing your own body parts and not really being you anymore. And rather than looking at, you know, a heart transplant, they're looking at technology here. And technology advancement was obviously starting to increase during the 60s. So I think you've hit on a great point there. Julie, anything you want to add for the introduction of the Cybermen? I don't think I was necessarily as keen on the Cybermen as all of you were. It took me a little while to warm up to them. I mean, one, I don't really care all that much about the models, so to speak, um, of the first couple ones. Not to say I disliked them or liked them. I just was like, okay, they're there. I, I wasn't impressed or not impressed. Really, my first time really liking them was Tomb of the Cyberman, but I think that was just the strength of that story is really what helped there. And also that whole breaking out of their cocoon thing and coming out of their tomb it was amazing. That was one of my favorite things. But when I sat back and thought about it, it's like, yes, that is terrifying. And that's the main reason why I think the Cyberman do so well is that thought of I could become a Cyberman. And that's really the scary part of it is that as a human, this is what I could become. But it just took me a while to warm up to that. They bring back the original 10th Planet Cybermen in the 12th Doctor's penultimate story, World Enough and Time. Seeing them again, and now that I know you've all seen the 10th Planet, to seeing those early models in the modern era provide some level of excitement or nerdy happiness. Did that work? Or do you think it was just an unnecessary bit of fan service? I think it worked. I absolutely loved it. And in fact, I, I love the fact that they 
provided, even though they were limited in costuming back then, to probably not be able to make like a full like metal robot, humanoid robot face that looked convincing enough to look very human. They had to do like the gauze or like the kind of the sock kind of thing. And then in World Enough in Time, they provide an answer for that. Why it's a fabric, why it's a cloth. And that's wonderful. And it, it's just, it's terrifying. It's, it looks great. Yeah, I think it works. In World Enough in Time, they gave them gloves, but you look back at the 10th planet and they still have their human hands. And that's so wonderfully creepy. It really yeah. does add mm -hmm. to that element of body horror that you were talking about, Don. Better than like the moon base where they had the weird, like, Oh yeah, <laughs> things, whatever yeah. those were. That was a yeah. bad time in Cyberman fashion. We don't we don't talk about that. <laughs> and we haven't even talked about their ability to skip. They're they're very good skippers across space. <laughs> For those of you who don't know, Riley is referring to a scene in The Wheel in Space, which was not necessarily their proudest moment. With the departure of the Daleks, the Cybermen more or less became the show's dominant monster. They have the most recurring appearances, but they weren't the only ones that the producers were trying to push. What do you think were the other monsters and aliens that were really vying for that kind of top spot that had been vacated by the Daleks? It's hands down the Vord. <laughs> Let's be honest. <laughs> That's what should have happened in an alternate timeline. Yeah. I yeah. mean, first of all, if, if you mean they were the dominant monsters, I mean, they were used in stories where literally any other monster could have worked and it didn't have to be Cybermen. So they kind of win by default. But their competition, I mean, the closest thing that happened was the Yeti, because they showed up twice. and Or the Ice Warriors. The, yes. Yeah, the Ice Warriors. I forgot about them. But you had a few other robotic-type enemies, like Quarks and Crotons and the Mechanoids, and just none of them had that same distinctiveness or the same coolness that the Daleks did. There's a lot to say about that, because... You can see that I always felt that the show was trying to push the Ice Warriors into that part, but they just, I mean, no one can really vie for that top spot, you know? I don't think anyone else can really compete. You had those struggles with the Ice Warriors. They put themselves into a corner with how they have to survive. They're always having to push that we need it to be cold. We need to get rid of the water and all those other things. So they back themselves up into a corner with them. And then obviously their first outing, not so great. Their second outing, right. much, much better, but still it's not where it needs to be. The Yeti, great idea. It comes across fairly well in the first one, but then by the second one, it's the problem is, is that since it's tied to the great intelligence and the great intelligence doesn't really have a great plan, um, it kind of, you know, struggles. I don't want it to like take away that there are some good mm -hmm. villains and good monsters, I think. Mm -hmm. And like we said, let's, we have to give a shout out to the Vord, especially in their stupid, sexy outfits. <laughs> stupid, the sexy Animus. Vord. Animus. Yeah, the, the Animus is, is extremely creepy. Also, let's not forget Mr. Oak and Mr. Quill yeah. from Fury yeah. from the Deep. They're yeah. excellent. And also the creepiest of all, Cyril from the Celestial Toymaker. Oh, oh my goodness. No. I love it. Yeah. And then there's one that I can't quite remember. It's like sitting here in the back of my mind. I'm not entirely sure what it is. Oh yeah. Who were I don't know. Who I don't think those? they don't think I don't I don't know. I don't think they exist or <laughs> Yeah. Well, interestingly, some of the monsters and villains that you've referenced make 
returns in New Who. Those that do not exist, otherwise known as the Macro returning gridlock. The Great Intelligence gets a few outings with the 11th Doctor and, and the Ice Warriors appear with the 11th and 12th Doctors. Do you think they are more effective in the modern show versus in the black and white era or the other way around or possibly neutral? It can be. A lot of it just depends on the budget that they have to realize the creatures and also the quality of the script. I like seeing the old monsters return in new ways. Yeah, I think the introduction of the macro was so random. I remember that yeah. coming on at the time and texting my friends and were like, the macro? Really? <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is a turn up for the books. <laughs> we are running relatively short on time. So one very last section, and this is episode six, the recommendations of Rassilon. And we want to talk about the standout stories of the black and white era. And I would suggest we give two stories from each doctor each. So Riley gives a total of four, Julie gives a total of four, Don gives a total of four. We will start with Riley and go around the group. So Riley, first and second doctors, standout stories. I'm willing to go ahead and cheat. I'm giving five, not four. <sighs> okay, second all, I want to encourage people, watch classic Doctor Who. You'll like it. Here are what I would say are my recommendations. I have my own personal favorites, but these are the ones that I think people, if they want to dip their toe in, this is what they should watch. And I picked the ones that all the episodes are complete. So you don't have to get into one that's missing anything. So let's go. Of course, obviously, the Daleks. Boom. Two, the Time Middler. Three, Tomb of the Cybermen. Four, the Enemy of the World. Five, the Mind Robber. Go see those. Enjoy them. And you'll probably want to watch the rest of classic Doctor Who in the black and white era. Do you want to give any context to any of those and, and why you've picked them? Sure. Like I said, I wanted to pick ones that all the episodes were available so people wouldn't have to do with the difficulty because that will turn some people off. But believe me, it's fine to watch ones that have missing episodes. It's good. Don't be scared. Secondly, I picked ones that were, I thought, just the highest quality that did not involve any major TARDIS crew change-ups. I wanted to be something that they could jump in independent of anything else that's going on and still be able to enjoy it without having to have any other background knowledge going into it. Don, what do you choose? Well, once again, I reject your format of the question and substitute my own. <laughs> I'm picking one story per season, and I'll even throw in some why. For the first season, I would watch An Unearthly Child, just the first episode, skip the cavemen stuff, and then go and watch the Daleks. You get an introduction to your characters, you get the first of the appearance of the Daleks. Yeah. It's a little slow, but it's really cool. Um, season two, Riley, you're going to like this, The Web Planet. Oh, yes. One of the nice things that you wouldn't really expect about old Doctor Who is they have no budget, but they have a lot of imagination, and they will attempt stuff that you really wouldn't see in the modern era. That's actually the same recommendation, well, same reasoning for my next recommendation, The Celestial Toy Maker. Fun mm -hmm. episode, a little weird. We get Cyril, creepy character who doesn't even have any magic powers. Pretty awesome. Next, it's a reconstruction, but it's well done. It's the Macro Terror. Yes. Very good story. You get some good stuff with the companions. If you listen to our episode, you get Julie singing a song. What more could you want? Um, Tomb of the Cybermen <laughs> is Tomb of the Cybermen, and it's awesome. It's a mummy movie with Cybermen. Mwah. And my last recommendation is probably one of the weirdest episodes of Doctor Who and they'll never do anything like it again, and that's The Mind Robber. Love those choices, Don. All right, Julie, what do you have on this? Your recommendations. This is going to be a little all over the place and people are going to have to forgive me. For a first Doctor, I still have this love of Marco Polo. 
I don't really know why. And it is a reconstruction. So sorry, everybody. But it's really well done. You get a lot of character moments. You get a sandstorm, which is a lot of fun. And Ping Cho telling this really cool story. You don't get a lot in Doctor Who. So it's just an all around fun one to, to watch, listen to, whatever have you. I'm going to throw out Mission to the Unknown. Ooh. Especially the one done by that university. It's so well done. It's a one episode. You don't even have to know who the doctor is because the doctor doesn't even show up in it. Um, But it's a one part story that you actually you can get a lot from it. And one more from the first doctor, because I again, I reject the two stories is Edge of Destruction. (laughs) Edge of Destruction is a lot of fun. Again, it's two episodes, so it's not very long. And it's all self-contained. It's only the Doctor and his companions. And you don't know what's going on. It's a mystery. And trying to figure out what's going on is probably one of the most fun I've had in some of early Doctor Who. As for second Doctor, enemy of the world. To see Troughton act as basically three characters is so much fun. Seeing him be the Doctor, seeing him be the bad guy, just hands down, so much fun. Then... I'm going to say the Macro Terror, as has been said before. I find it a lot of fun. And I'm going to throw out the War Games. War Games is a monumental undertaking that I don't think was really that stretched out. I think that they did a really good job of cycling through everything. We actually finally get some backstory and we find out why the Time Lords are the worst. <laughs> yes. All right, so I'm going to throw my own recommendations in as well. And I'm taking the perspective of if you are new to classic Doctor Who, and particularly the black and white era, these are the stories that show you what those original two Doctors are all about and get you a flavor of them. For the first Doctor, my two stories are both from season two. One of them is the Romans, so you get a flavor of the historical, as well as something that's very funny and very entertaining and well-paced. There are no monsters or aliens in it, but it's a really great story. And, you know, the historicals are something that's unique, predominantly to the Hartnell period. And then I would also recommend The Chase. It's silly. It's enjoyable. You get Daleks. You get Daleks traveling in time. And unsurprisingly, from the name, you get them chasing our heroes. But it's just such an enjoyable romp. Well worth a couple of hours of your time to sit through. Then for the second Doctor... It's not one of my absolute favorites, but it is one that I enjoy. The Tomb of the Cybermen does a really, really good job at showing you what that Doctor is all about. To the point where Matt Smith, when preparing for the role of the 11th Doctor, watched it and drew a lot of influence from Patrick Troughton in that story. And then finally, I'm with Don, the Mind Robber. It is so weird. It's out there. It's the only story in the podcast that I've given 10 out of 10 to so far that any of us have given 10 out of 10 to, for that matter. And it's it's great. It's it's bizarre. You get Jamie and Zoe, so the two companions that we already mentioned as being the best. Highly enjoyable, highly recommended. Go check that one out. We are very sadly at time. We'd like to give a massive thank you to both DragonCon as well as the Brit Track for having us back for a second year running on DragonCon Virtual. And to everyone else, thank you for tuning in and have a good one. You have been listening to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension with Don Smith, Riley Shrek, Julie Filipek, and myself, Anthony Williams. This bonus episode, Stupid Sexy Vord, was recorded for DragonCon's 2021 virtual programming on Saturday the 19th of June, 
2021. If this is your first time listening in, all of our previous episodes are available through your favourite podcasting app. You can interact with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Watchers4D, and you can also email us at Watchers4D at gmail.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do subscribe and leave us a review or rating on your favorite podcasting app. All of those things really do help the show. And always remember, 1960s era of Doctor Who was wonderful. Go and watch it. Nothing in the world can stop me now!